Blog Talk Radio. that I believe needs to be addressed. So are we going to get another COVID bailout? That's issue number one that we're going to deal with. I'll dive into what we know so far. Most of this is from Jeffrey Stein of Washington Post. So we'll talk about that. Trump also called a big press conference in the Rose Garden the other day. We are going to dissect that a thousand ways because um, he announced an initiative involving China. He hit Biden with 57 punches, and I believe a grand total of none of them landed. Um, Joe Biden has a new ad out in Texas that we're going to talk about. And then we have, um, we know who some of the people are that will be in Biden's administration. So we'll discuss that as well. I will get into the Barry Weiss thing. I will talk about the new culture war front involving Goya. (laughs) Oh, these things are so ridiculous. Anyway, so full show today for everybody. Let's stop fucking around and get it started. Um, we'll dive right in with this, the specifics of the new COVID bailout. All right, let's do it. At the end of this month, eviction protections expire. Uh, along with the $600 extended unemployment benefit. That's expiring as well. So basically, we're heading towards a total apocalypse. Um, If these things are not addressed, then we're going to be in a crisis the likes of which we have never seen, only comparable to the Great Depression. 
it will be a new housing crisis because the numbers are absurd. So we discussed it, but 25% of people in New York, um, 25% of renters in New York haven't made a payment since like March or something like that. Um, all around the country, I believe the number is 32% haven't made their uh, last payment. And then there are plenty of people who paid a little bit but didn't pay the full thing, and apparently that's a big indicator that obviously they won't be able to pay the next month. So this is this, the original stimulus check, the one-time $1,200 payment, that's long gone. The extended unemployment is running out. Nightmare, nightmare scenario. So in a world that made sense, what would happen? You would have Democrats and Republicans come together in Washington, D.C., say, oh, my God, we have this problem that needs to be addressed. Let's do it now, and let's address it in a serious way. Uh, instead of that, because the world we live in doesn't make sense, what we're getting is the White House has their list of things that may or may not be included in the next potential bailout bill. So take a look at this. Um, this is from Jeff Stein of the Washington Post, who really does great work. He says, Kudlow today, Larry Kudlow, Trump's top economic advisor, on some key White House priorities for phase four. That would be the new bailout. Payroll tax holiday, that's a tax cut. Unemployment reforms, the White House wants to knock down the $600. So if they extend the unemployment uh, benefits, it would be less than that extra $600. Could be as low as $200. Um, there's going to be return to work bonuses. Um, a PPP extension, maybe, maybe not targeted direct form of stimulus checks. Now, on this front, again, it would be a one-time payment yet again, and they're contemplating less than the $1,200 payment. And then finally, you get capital gains holiday. So for those of you who aren't aware, the capital gains tax is a tax that is on money made through investments in the stock market. You understand the capital gains tax is a tax on money made through investments in the stock market. So in other words, it's a tax that hits basically the top 10% of income earners in the country because 92% of the stock market is owned by the top 10%. So they're talking about a capital gains tax holiday, which is a targeted tax to help the rich, and this is in what they're considering for the next COVID bill. So Lee Fong weighed in on this. He said the following, Mick Mulvaney, again, part of Trump's crew, says if we have, if we have another stimulus, it should include indexing the capital gains tax for inflation. That would be a $2 trillion tax cut over 10 years, 86% of which will go to the top 1% of ultra-rich Americans. So, let's review here. We have eviction protections going away. And even if they extend them a little bit longer because of COVID, which they probably will because they have to, because COVID is actually worse now than it was previously. But So we have the eviction protections coming to a close. Even if they put that off longer, let's say another year, eventually it's not going to be there. You have the $600 extra unemployment benefit, which is either going to be eliminated or it's going to be knocked down drastically. You have 
um, a stimulus check, which again would be a one-time payment of probably less than $1,200. And the real goal, the real goal is going to be more tax cuts for the rich in a potential phase four COVID bailout bill. So in other words, they screwed you in the first however many there have been, and now they're going to screw you again. That's what's happening. So the CARES Act was a giant giveaway, a giant subsidy or welfare check to the corporations. That's what it was. It was officially implementing corporate socialism in this country. So now the corporations know they cannot fail. People can fail. They fail all the time. Screw them. We'll give them crumbs. The corporations, we're going to save. Also, the Federal Reserve, the central bank, jumped in a trillion dollars a day of liquidity to prop up the marketplace yet again. It's another sign the oligarchs, the wealthy, the corporations will not fail. We will not let them fail. But the people got screwed, got absolutely devastated. Now it looks like if they do another bailout bill, yet again, the core of it will be really to help the rich more, to give the rich more money, to give the rich another tax cut, even though they already got how many tax cuts have they gotten under Trump? The 2017 tax cut law was a joke, was a joke. 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% for that bill. Every tax cut for regular people expires. The ones for the rich were permanent in that bill. It was the Bush tax cuts on steroids. And now yet again, this is what we're looking at right here. Naomi Klein wrote the book, The Shock Doctrine. And the idea is whenever there's a crisis, whenever there's a tragedy, whenever there's a moment of chaos or mayhem, you have people exploit that for a pre-existing ideology or philosophy. And so oftentimes we see it, whether it's the supply-side economics people, the Reaganomics people, the trickle-down people, they're waiting in the wings to jump in and say, all right, cut, the ta- cut taxes for the rich even more. It's what we have to do. We have no choice. See, that's what happens. When there's a moment of chaos, people come in, they pretend to be experts. We have no choice. We got, we got to do what we got to do. We got to cut taxes for the rich. The neocons, same thing. The neocons always wanted to overthrow Iraq. They saw with 9-11 an opportunity. Oh, what if we say Saddam worked with al-Qaeda? What if we say Saddam has weapons of mass destruction and he's threatening the United States? What if we do that? Then we could topple Iraq. Then we could do it. So let's use 9-11. Let's exploit this tragedy for something we already wanted to do. We just need to sufficiently build the case and use the chaos and use the mayhem to our advantage to have these people, you know, swoop in and get exactly what they want. This is what we're seeing yet again. And unfortunately, the left is so weak and beaten down and so bad at strategizing and they have no teeth that they'll probably go along with this too. They'll get tiny little concessions here and there, but then ultimately vote for it and maybe make a couple noises about how it's not perfect, but we got to do what we got to do. Pathetic. Pathetic. Listen, we're not remotely serious unless we're having a conversation right now about universal basic income. We're not serious unless we're talking about Medicare for all, at the very least, all bills associated with COVID-19 wiped out, totally wiped out, all tests, all treatments, full stop. We're not serious unless we're talking about getting those 5.4 million people who just lost their health care, they get their health care back. We're not serious unless we talk about 
what other developed countries have done, which is temporarily nationalize wages for businesses that can't open up yet because of reduced demand as a result of the COVID downturn. We're not serious unless we're having a conversation about universal masks provided by the government. So we know what the answers are. We know what the solutions are. You know, I've brought up this example many times, but look at what Japan did and how they handled COVID. They, did, they didn't even do a full economic shutdown like we did. They did little sectors here and there, but they have less than 1,000 COVID deaths, and it's because they basically have universal masks. Look at Germany. By the way, uh, Japan's unemployment rate, at least as of a few months ago, was about 2.6%. We, our actual unemployment rate is over 20%. We went from like 35 or 4% to over 20%. You have uh, Germany, same thing, nationalize the wages, So this way, people don't get fired, they get furloughed, protect the workers, protect the economy, protect the country, and react accordingly and defeat the virus. We're just a mess over here. We're just a mess. Basically, the virus was used as an excuse to fully implement corporate socialism and have an oligarchy hierarchy. That's funny to use those two words back to back. But you have billionaires and corporations at the top of the chain. And they solidified their rule. It was basically a reverse Robin Hood that was pulled on the American people using COVID as the excuse. Meanwhile, the virus is still spreading like wildfire. We don't have universal masks. We don't have UBI. We don't have nationalized wages. And we are about to hit an economic downturn, the likes of which we haven't seen since the Great Depression or maybe ever. Because there's going to be a foreclosure and eviction crisis. It's on the way. There's a crisis of legitimacy already. You think that the George Floyd protests were overwhelming? Wait until you see what's coming. Because when you routinely deny people material well-being, as is happening with all these bailout packages that are geared towards giving more to the rich, I mean, you're begging for some kind of revolution, some kind of destruction of the system. I don't know exactly what form it's going to take and how it's going to come about specifically, but something's going to happen, and it's not going to be okay. Because... Guys, if you get to the point, and we might be there, where like 50% or more of the country can't pay their bills, that's unsustainable. That's unsustainable. So honestly, people uh, who are in wealthy circles, in elitist circles, and in Washington, D.C., they better have an enlightenment moment here. Because just like with the Great Depression, FDR, although he had so many wonderful social democratic reforms, He has left-wing critics who say, you know what? He actually saved capitalism. Because if they didn't redistribute some, well, then the whole, there could have been like a communist revolution. So at the very least, the people in power have to go, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to do something. We got to do some redistribution of wealth. We have billionaires getting way more rich in this downturn and everybody else is struggling, they can't pay the bills, not even the bare minimum basic stuff. So they better have an enlightenment moment where they say, we got to go in a social democratic direction. we got to at least do UBI and, and Medicare for all. But I, I don't think they're going to learn that lesson. And boy, oh boy, will they be surprised when they see how overwhelming the societal unrest becomes.
let's dive into Trump's Trump's press conference. So President Trump yesterday called a big press conference in the Rose Garden. Now, everybody needs to understand the context here. As a general rule, when the president gives an address from the Rose Garden, it's a big announcement. Like, it's reserved for big-ticket issues and important moments. So, um, well, what did Trump say? What did he say in this, you know, really important moment? Well, you're going to find out. President Trump said Tuesday that he has signed legislation that would impose mandatory sanctions on individuals and businesses that assist China in restricting Hong Kong's autonomy. Trump also announced in a press conference in the White House Rose Garden that he signed an executive order declaring the United States would treat Hong Kong the same as mainland China. The president said he took the actions to, quote, hold China accountable for its oppressive actions against the people of Hong Kong. The effort to punish China over treatment of Hong Kong was triggered by its passage of a controversial national security law that offers Beijing a high degree of power over the semi-autonomous territory. The legislation signed by Trump, formerly known as the Hong Kong Autonomy Act, was sponsored by Senators Chris Van Hollen and Pat Toomey, it's a Democrat and a Republican, and approved by the House and Senate earlier this month. So the Cliff Notes version is, President Trump called a press conference to say, we're going to escalate tensions with China over the issue of Hong Kong, um, therefore putting us in a tense situation similar to what we've been doing with Russia as well in terms of escalation, NATO troop buildup on their border, more sanctions. So he's announcing we're going to make a turn towards a more neoconservative approach when it comes to dealing with China, and again, specifically over the issue of Hong Kong. Now, I'm not to say nothing about the issue of Hong Kong and their autonomy and the history of Hong Kong, and is it more independent? Is it part of China? How exactly do we look at the history of it, and do we come to some sort of a reasonable conclusion on it? I'm not going to touch that issue right now, because honestly, that's an issue that's so dense and complex that it deserves its own video to really get into all the specifics and the nooks and the crannies of it. So putting aside the issue of of the specifics of Hong Kong here for a second, stop and think about this, guys. And this is why this is, I think, just a nightmare strategically and politically for Trump. He spoke for over an hour. He led with, we're going to crack down on China over Hong Kong. The rest of the time, all he did was bash Joe Biden, and then he bragged about the economy somehow. We'll get to videos on that in a little bit. But at a time where we have an economic depression and a pandemic that keeps hitting record highs in the United States, when the only two countries in the world that can't get this under control are the United States and Brazil, do you realize how ridiculous this looks to your average American? Again, putting aside this specific issue of Hong Kong, why would you escalate with anybody at this point in time? You think people are waking up in the morning going, you know, I'd really like to do more neoconservative hawkish gestures on the world stage today. No, dude, I got news for you, Don. You have to do something to address the rapidly rising cases of COVID and, of course, 
the death number will spike and will continue to spike now because more and more people are getting the virus. You have to do something to address the pandemic. He was, he was doing daily press conferences when the numbers were lower than they are now. How are you going to give press conferences every day about this terrible thing that's happening and we've got to get it under control and here I'm going to mimic leadership. He was doing it every day before. Now the cases are worse ever and he's acting like the virus doesn't even exist. In fact, internally they've admitted like, we just hope Americans are going to get numb to this and are not going to hold this against the Trump administration. And the other thing they're doing is they're saying they released an ad where they're telling people, oh, if you lost your job, just get another one. So we have an economic depression. We have an eviction and foreclosure crisis. We have a pandemic that's continuing to spread, and it's the worst it's ever been. And we have a tumultuous uprising, the likes of which we haven't seen since the 1960s. And Trump's focus is not fixing or leading on any one of those things. He's going to go out there and escalate with another major world power, namely China, over Hong Kong. Regardless of what you think of the issue of Hong Kong, this is not what you do. Guys, uh, my guess is everybody's having the same reaction as me, which is just, I'm overwhelmed. I'm going to need you to www.shutthehellup.org. This is not, I'm overwhelmed. It's like when I woke up that day and found out, oh, Trump just assassinated a leading Iranian general and sparked a national or international crisis, and we might have to go to World War III uh, with Iran, China, and Russia over our aggression and hawkishness, which was totally not necessary. And, oh, yeah, by the way, that general who we assassinated was on the front line fighting ISIS. So thank you for acting as ISIS's air force. I just woke up one day. Oh, we assassinated an Iranian general. What the? What? 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 As if we don't have enough problems as is. Why are you adding more things to the list? This is like the definition of unstable leadership. He's trying to deflect from the major issues of the day and trying to make it seem like, oh, I'm a tough guy. I'm going to lead on this. And then he turns around and starts, you know, he hits. Uh, Biden, over a thousand issues, but the idea is, oh, Biden's weak on China, I'm strong on China. Nobody is asking for you to be more aggressive and standoffish with another major world power, namely at a moment like this right now. We're asking for the pandemic to be eliminated. We're asking for the economy to turn around. We're asking for jobs. We're asking for health care. Guys, report just came out the other day. At least 5.4 million people have lost their health insurance since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic. That actually, I think, is a massive um, understatement because we know that, what was it, seven to nine million people had lost their health insurance under the Trump administration prior to COVID. They're saying another 5.4 million now lost because of COVID. But when you mix in COVID and um, some of the executive orders that Trump has done to destroy Obamacare, there are reports that you can get anywhere from 20 million to 40 million people losing their health insurance in the remainder of Trump's time in office. So I think the 5 million is undercounting it, and it's still rapidly rising. How can you look at a country where actual unemployment is over 20%, where we keep hemorrhaging millions and millions of people losing their health insurance, when we have a pandemic ripping through the country, and you're going to go out there and add another issue to this long list of issues, which is only going to make the world less stable and which is only going to scare people more. Again, I'm not saying anything about 
the specifics of the issue of Hong Kong. That's a very complex issue. It's a nuanced issue. And, you know, there should be a deep dive on that alone. But the fact that, like, this is literally the worst time, the last time any president should ever do something like this, ever, ever. Like, you know what? Fix the 20% unemployment rate first. Fix the pandemic first. Fix the foreclosure and eviction crisis first. None of that. So, listen, I, you know, I keep having these moments now, more and more. And we'll get, get into this more in a little bit. But the more I see him, the more we get, we, we're getting closer and closer to the election. And the closer we get, the worse his strategy becomes. He's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And um, Biden should thank his lucky stars because that hiding in the basement is working even better than any other potential strategy could ever work. Now, I'm not done. I am not done with Trump's speech yet. Let me give you some more. So Trump called a press conference in the Rose Garden recently, usually reserved for, you know, really big issues and stuff. What did he do? He announced um, a move to escalate with China over Hong Kong. Not exactly something I would handle at this moment in history when you still have a pandemic spreading like wildfire and it's out of control and you have the actual unemployment rate over 20% uh, and you have a foreclosure and eviction crisis. You got all these other issues to handle and you're going right to let's escalate with China. It seems like a dumb idea, but Trump brought that up at the beginning of his speech in the Rose Garden. What did he proceed to do the rest of the speech? He was basically doing a campaign rally going after Joe Biden in honestly what looked to me like one of the most desperate attempts to do that of all time. Biden is a target that is ripe for criticism. I got a million things I could say about Joe Biden to tear him down. I mean, his record is abysmal. He's a neoliberal corporatist through and through. He was for all these terrible, criminal, immoral, disastrous wars. You know, we can go on and on, right? That stuff wasn't really brought up by Trump. He's using the dumbest strategy I've ever heard in my entire life. So here's just, you know, I think this is like two or three moments from Trump's speech. And you can see how desperate this looks. And we saved tens of thousands of lives, but we actually saved millions of lives. By closing, by closing up, we saved millions, potentially millions of lives. Could be a number that we're actually working on, but it could be two to three million lives. So we're at 135,000, which is terrible. One is too much. But we would have had millions of people dead from this curse that came at us. But we did what we had to do, and now we'll put out the flames as it, as it happens. We have to get the schools open. We have to get everything open. A lot of people don't want to do that for political reasons, not for other reasons. But if we had listened to Joe Biden, hundreds of thousands of additional lives would have been lost. And if you look at the job he did on swine flu, I looked at a poll. They have polls on everything nowadays. And uh, they got very bad marks on the 
job they did on the swine flu, H1N1. He calls it N1H1. H1N1. Got very poor marks from Gallup on the job they did on swine flu. I guess the stock market went up almost 500 points today, something thereabouts. Go check. But it was up a lot when I left. And our economy is coming back. We're almost at a level where, even though it's long before the very important, maybe the most important ever, election of November 3rd, but long before that, but we're close to record stock markets again, and NASDAQ hit an all-time high for the 16th time. Think of that. For the 16th time over the last month or so, for the 16th time, so one of our markets already hit an all-time high. Are you out of your mind? Are you dense? Okay, homeboy's bragging about the NASDAQ and the stock market when we have 20% actual unemployment, 32% of the country couldn't pay their freaking bills last month, we're going to have an eviction and foreclosure crisis, and you're talking about the stock market going up. Just so everybody understands, 10% of the country owns 92% of the stocks. The richest 10% own the stocks. So when you brag about the stock market, basically you're saying, you know, it's really wonderful because what we're seeing here is that the rich are still rich and maybe even getting richer. It's really a wonderful thing if you know what I'm saying. Okay, that's not, that's like literally the last indicator I would use. It's actually a double whammy with the stock market because when it goes down, regular people do get screwed because then people lose their jobs because the wealthy will fire those people. But when it goes up, it's privatize the gains, socialize the losses, so... When it goes up, it really only helps the wealthy. So, but that, like, if you created a list of all the economic indicators, the health of the stock market is at the very bottom in terms of how it would affect your average person. Like I said, we got 20% actual unemployment, and we have an eviction and foreclosure crisis, and we got people, even people who still have their jobs, took massive pay cuts. Virtually everybody I know personally, and I know this is anecdotal, but you talk to them and everybody's like, yeah, I got a 15% pay cut, or yeah, we, everybody in my department got a 20% pay cut. This is what we're dealing with. And Trump is out there bragging as we hit record COVID numbers, bro. Sorry for the beeping of the computer. He brought up swine flu. He brought up swine flu. You know how many people died in the swine flu pandemic? 3,400. You know how many died? Uh, with COVID in the United States, and this is just so far, we're not even close to done yet. Not even close to done. We're, all, we're at a new record high. 130,000 from COVID just so far. He's hitting Biden on swine flu when 3,400 people died. On his watch, COVID, 130,000 and climbing rapidly died. What are you doing? What are you doing? I'm going to unplug this because it's going to beep nonstop. Okay, maybe I'll just leave it like that now, even though it's going to beep again. <laughs> this is what happens when you have old laptops and you're live. You get random noises. Anyway, um, and then he brags. You can't, you're not allowed to brag when it comes to anything involving COVID because this is like the most abysmal failure I've ever seen. It's the United States and Brazil stand out alone around the world. Everybody else managed to get it under, under control, and there were different strategies everywhere else, but... They did manage to get it under control. Us in Brazil are just abysmal and pathetic. 
but he bragged about banning flights from China. Well, how'd that work out? Did we stop COVID from spreading here? No, we didn't do that at all. One policy, if we just did universal masks from early on and everybody wore a mask, I told you guys, China, uh, not, excuse me, not China, um, Japan, now they've made mistakes. It wasn't perfect. They, sh- they shut down sectors here and there of the economy, but they didn't do a total economic shutdown like we did. They had less than 1,000 COVID deaths. Why? Because everybody wears a mask. If we had just done universal masks early on, there's no way we would have had this abysmal, this abysmal record-setting level of cases and deaths. And then he goes on to say, we have to get the schools open. We have to get the schools open. You know, other people maybe want to shut them down, but they only want to shut them down for political reasons. I can guarantee you every single person who wants to shut the schools down, they want to shut it down because they don't want to die and they don't want kids to die and they don't want kids to spread it to older family members. Like, that's why people want to shut down the schools. They th- Trump really believes the reason why people might not want to open schools is to hurt him politically. Well, if you force the schools open, as Trump wants to do, then you're going to spread the cases way more, and that's going to hurt you as well. See, you messed this up so bad, Trump, there's no way for you to, for you to win, because if you shut the schools down, yes, that, that does have a lot of negative consequences associated with it, and it makes life a lot harder if you're doing learning at home as much as possible. You know, parents probably get annoyed by that and a million other things. But if you send it back to school, well, you don't have COVID under control, so more people are going to get sick, so there are no good answers. So what does he do? He goes out there and deflects, blames Biden for swine flu, and then goes on to brag about the stock market. I mean, this is embarrassing stuff. Guys, again, it's now every single day. The more evidence I see, the more Trump talks. Like that that win percentage chance for Biden just keeps steadily climbing every day. I mean, we're at like 80% chance of a Biden victory right now. And that might keep climbing because Trump is just, he's botched this in so many ways. And his strategy is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. How are you going to, when you have an economic depression and a pandemic and you go out there and announce new sanctions on China over Hong Kong, adding another thing to a list of things that are a pain in the ass and difficult to deal with and are tense, that's not something that's stable. You're creating another problem in the midst of a thousand problems, and then the rest of the freaking speech is just you bashing Biden with any and every idea you could possibly come up with. You got swine flu, you're hitting him because he wants to keep the schools closed to save lives. Bragging about the market, it... His political instincts are gone because he's so drunk on Fox News and One American News Network, and he's surrounded by terrible advisors who are wrong about everything. Um, and, yeah, his campaign staffers, too, clearly have no idea what they're doing. So, again, Biden should thank his lucky stars because he doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to do anything. He could keep hiding in the basement, and he could win in a landslide. Because as long as Trump's using strategies like this, the entire country's rolling their eyes. You think I'm the only one who's watching this going, like, what are you doing? Virtually every normal person in the country watching this was like, put sanctions on China now? With everything going, you're going to focus on China. Get COVID under control. What are you doing? Get it under control. Fix the 
economy, 20% real unemployment. You're bragging about the economy? You're talking about the NASDAQ, bro. You're talking about the NASDAQ right now. You brought up swine flu? Swine flu? Swine flu. Oh, man. Abysmal. I've never seen somebody lose all their political instincts in a faster, more devastating way than Trump. All right, next. This is the final one from the Rose Garden speech, but it's a good one, and I had to slip it in here. I covered Trump's Rose Garden speech a thousand ways in the midst of a pandemic ripping, roaring through the country um, instead of trying to fix the record number of cases, the 130,000 deaths, the millions of cases that are, you know, we're getting, what, 50,000 new cases every day at least. Instead of addressing that, instead of addressing the 20% real unemployment, instead of addressing the 32% of Americans who can't pay their bills, the foreclosure and eviction crisis, instead of addressing any of this, any of it, Trump announced new sanctions on China over Hong Kong, Okay, but my favorite, this is, honestly, this is my favorite part of his speech. He proceeded to go after Biden in a thousand ways that made no sense. He attacked him for swine flu when less than 4,000 Americans died from swine flu, 130,000 died from COVID. He bragged about the stock market being awesome, even though the top 10% of income earners have 92% of the stocks. Total, totally idiotic. He's delusional. His strategy now is incoherent for 2020, but take a look at this. This is the line of attack that Trump is deciding to use against Biden. At a time when we have all these problems, here's what he's saying about Joe. Watch. Last week, Joe Biden released his unity platform developed with socialist Bernie Sanders describing what he would do if elected president. The Biden-Sanders agenda is is the most extreme platform of any major party nominee by far in American history. I think it's worse than actually Bernie's platform. It's gone so far right. Okay, now don't get it twisted. What he meant to say was it's gone so far left. That's what he meant to say. Um, He's arguing that the Unity Commission and their policy recommendations, he's arguing that those are more extreme or more far left than Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden is to the left of Bernie Sanders, Don? That's what you're saying? Joe Biden is to the left of Bernie Sanders. That's your argument, Donald Trump? Joe Biden is to the left of Bernie Sanders. Crime bill Joe Biden is to the left of Bernie Sanders. The senator who most directly served the credit card industry, that guy is to the left of Bernie Sanders, the guy who helped make it so that you can't file for bankruptcy on your student loans. That guy's to the left of Bernie Sanders, the guy who was for the Iraq War, the guy who was for the Patriot Act, the guy who was for... NAFTA. That guy is to the left of Bernie Sanders? Don, I wish, bitch. 
idea, I'd give away a, a pinky finger, or I'd give away, you know, one of my toes. I'd cut it right off, ship it in the mail to whoever you want, if Joe Biden would be to the left of Bernie Sanders. Beyond incoherent. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know what he's saying. And by the way, he keeps contradicting himself, too. So what happened the other day? Well, there's one issue where Joe Biden really outflanked Trump in a brilliant way. I was screaming at him to do, to do something like this. Thankfully, he did it. Um, I'm not saying I directly impacted that. Who knows? Maybe I did, but <laughs> I don't think I did, unless one of his advisors watches the show or something or somebody on the Unity Commission watches the show. But what, what, Ber- what uh, Biden did is he said, I'm even more pro by american than Trump. Trump only did a symbolic buy American week where it's nothing. You just showcase the products that are built in America and say, we're so wonderful, and you suck off America a little bit, and then everybody says, yay, and then you go home. There's an actual buy American executive order which mandates that the federal government buys American. Trump didn't sign it. He said he was going to sign it. He never signed it. Biden's saying, I will actually sign it. Any product bought by the United States government needs to be manufactured in America, period. So Biden's saying he's going to sign that. So we outflanked Trump on an issue that helped Trump win in 2016. So what did Trump do? Trump goes out there and says, you know, this is very unfair. Sleepy Joe is plagiarizing me. This is definitely plagiarism. This is very unfair. And this is a very far left plan, and it's a very extreme radical plan. I don't like it. Which is it? Which is it? Did he plagiarize you? So did I, Donald Trump, came up with this good policy, and Joe Biden stole it. Did that happen? Or... Is it a bad idea and an extreme radical plan that you don't like? He says both things at once. You want to know why? Because he's a fucking idiot, bro. He's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's a giant walking id. Everything about Trump is just impulsive and instinctual and primitive. So what's happening now? He's so down in the polls that he's panicking and he's just throwing every argument at Biden nonstop, endlessly. So, you know, on the one hand, oh, my God, oh, my God, he's gone so far left, no. And then watch, he will also attack him in some ways where he tries to pivot to Biden's left. Which is it? Is he so far left or do you want to get to the left of him? Which is it? Which is, doesn't matter. Logical consistency is irrelevant. It's irrelevant. He doesn't notice that he's contradicting himself because none of this matters to him. See, this is what I'm trying to get across to you guys. None of this policy stuff matters to him. All that matters is macho man Donnie winning so he can say, I won. So he can continue to get the, the self-aggrandizement and feed his ego and his narcissism. That's what this comes down to. But it's so clear that he believes in nothing. It's just so obvious at this point. And, and he even goes as far as downplaying the 130,000 deaths, downplaying COVID-19, pretending the economy's already back because of the market when you have 20% actual unemployment and a foreclosure and eviction crisis. He's so delusional and he's so up his own ass that he's in his own world of marketing and strategizing and it's just totally contradictory and incoherent, which is why he's down so massively. He doesn't look like a leader. He's not a calming, stable influence on the country. He's not fixing the problems. He's ignoring and avoiding a lot of them and exacerbating many of them. So that, this is where we are now. But one of the attacks from Trump against Biden is that, oh, my God, Joe Biden is now to the left of Bernie Sanders. 
is um, really trending heavily in one direction. We have a situation now where Iowa is in play for Joe Biden. That was unimaginable just recently. And also, Texas is in play for Biden. He's competitive in Texas. Now, I get it. Everybody's going to say, yeah, okay, please. Republicans always win Texas. That's true, which is why I'm skeptical, just like you should be skeptical. And I think it's very likely that even if Trump wins, he'll probably like, he might edge it out in Texas. But, you know, it's very likely Trump still wins Texas. I'm sure in the average he's up a decent amount. But there are some polls, recent polls, that have Biden right there, right there within the margin of error. Um, So the Biden campaign from his basement (laughs) are saying, all right, let's be a little ambitious here. Because, you know, every day he hides, he seems to go up in the polls. Because Trump is doing such an abysmal job with COVID and the economy, the real economy is so screwed that people are just like, anything but this guy, anything but Trump. So now look at the new ad that Biden and his, his team came up with. This is what's running in Texas. Take a look, and then I'll dissect it. Medicare for all, because he doesn't believe in Medicare for all, even though that would help tremendously 
in a pandemic when people across the country, millions and millions of people, are losing their private insurance because it's tied to their jobs and they lost their jobs because of the COVID downturn. Medicare for all is the answer. You got to bring it up. You got to talk about the policies because that's how are we supposed to know that you're actually going to fix this unless you explain to us what you're going to do to fix it. And the way you fix it is Medicare for all, UBI, universal masks. So really a, a very serious policy-based ad would call for Medicare for all, would call for UBI, would call for universal masks. Like there are substantive ways to address this crisis and these crises, but you have to actually address them. You have to actually be specific and, and explain what we do to defeat it and to, and to move forward and fix the country and help people out. Okay, so that's the left-wing criticism is there's no policy in this. This is just, you know, a guy with its standard political talking points pretending to be a leader. So now I get to the other way I'm going to dissect this ad, which is the view from a normie American. Guys, pretend leadership polls a hell of a lot better than total avoidance. And what is Donald Trump doing right now? Total avoidance of COVID-19. He was doing daily press conferences previously. Then he stopped doing the daily press conferences after he embarrassed himself with, you know, his rant about got to get the sunlight inside the body, maybe. Can we do that? Maybe we do that. (laughs) So he stopped doing the COVID daily press conferences. Now COVID-19 is worse than it's ever been in the United States of America. And he's still not doing the daily press conferences. And he hasn't had a meeting with Fauci in like over a month. Like, and forget Fauci if you say that's too political. His normal, you know, people who would advise him who are medical experts or scientists, they're nowhere to be found. He's not even really talking about this. His campaign is admitting that they kind of hope that the Americans grow numb to it and then, like, forget about it and don't hold it against Trump. So avoidance, which is what Trump is doing on this, it's what Trump is doing on the unemployment crisis, it's what Trump is doing on um, the foreclosure and eviction crisis, avoidance polls terribly. People look at you and go, your job is to fix these real problems. You're pretending like these real problems don't exist. If anything, Trump is bragging as the problems get worse and worse. He was just bragging about the NASDAQ. I mean, come on, man. How out of touch are you? So people look at that and they're grossed out. They're like, nope, forget this guy. That is the worst thing you could ever do in this situation. You can't. I know Trump is really good at diversion and marketing and overriding stuff through force of personality and and, and repeating himself, you can't override a pandemic. It's not a PR issue. It's not a marketing issue. It's a real-world problem. You can't override it through force of will. That's not the way this works. So a lot of the scandals in, in leading up to the 2016 election, like Trump getting caught saying, grab him by the pussy, I don't even wait, he just bulldozed ahead. And that wasn't... That was a, you know, a, a media scandal that doesn't really directly impact every American in, in a personal way like a freaking pandemic does and like a depression does. So we could override it with force of will. He can't override this with force of will. It's not possible. So pretend leadership, which is what Biden is doing here, pulls a hell of a lot better than avoidance, which is what Trump is doing here, which brings me to my final point, which is. As a general rule and as part of my politics, I reject this notion that returning to normal is something that we should strive for, namely because normal was absolutely terrible. Normal was a situation where 78% of Americans were already living paycheck to paycheck. Normal is our infrastructure getting a grade of D+. Normal is millions of Americans 
um, not having health insurance. Normal is 45,000 Americans dying every year because they don't have access to basic health care. I can go on and on here. Normal is endless wars. So I reject this notion of like, well, we got to return to normal, and that should be a goal of our politics. No, the goal of our politics should be how do we fix society? How do we help people? How do we set a floor, a minimum floor, which is reasonable, which gives people a shot at making it and finding real comfort and happiness and meaning? That's what our politics should be about, not a return to normal when the normal was terrible to begin with. However, guys, there's no escaping it. For normie Americans, when you have a pandemic, and you have a depression, and you have a foreclosure and eviction crisis, as of right now, you tell them, moron reality show host who's avoiding all the real problems and talking about statues, or somebody who's at least nominally going to address these problems, even if the way he addresses it is not real, is not sincere, if it's pretend leadership, at least he's doing something, focusing on it in one way or another. Let me tell you something. In a situation like this, it's almost tailor-made for the instinct of returning to normal to come out in regular people. A moment like this with a depression and a pandemic, it is tailor-made for the return to normal crowd to be able to swoop right back into power. Because you know what? When there is a depression and when there is a, a pandemic, most normal people say, step one is let's defeat the depression and let's defeat the pandemic. So in that sense, returning to normal becomes a hell of a lot more appealing to people. So that's why I think Biden is positioned very well leading into this election. Right now, he's an overwhelming, colossal favorite because this kind of fake leadership stuff, people are going to eat it up, man. They're going to eat it up because really all of the, all of the things about Trump that are political liabilities, we didn't have the necessary surrounding circumstance for those things to be highlighted. But in a pandemic and a depression, now all those things are liabilities and they are highlighted. And um, that's why Biden can keep rising in the polls by hiding. So uh, ads like that, I know it's traditional politics. I know he's like, basically Biden is playing the role of, I'm the president in a 1990s action movie. Like, that's, that's the role he has to play. Like, let me give you some fake leadership, some, some words, make it seem like I'm a, I'm a leader who has empathy and wants to fix the problems. That might be all that's needed. you got to think about it like this, guys. In 2008, this isn't to diminish Obama's political skill when it comes to campaigning. He's a wonderful campaigner. But in, in 2008, George W. Bush's approval rating was under 30%. And then you had McCain and Palin versus Obama and Biden. Obama and Biden won. I got news for you. A ham sandwich could have won back then on the Democratic side. Why? Because George W. Bush had under a 30% approval rating. As Noam Chomsky says, this kind of system is the envy of dictators around the world. The two-party system that we've developed. Because people like me and like you, who always, we want to fight for something better. We want something that's more ambitious that's more idealistic, that's more principled. Ultimately, when it comes down to, to election day in the United States, and you know the only viable options are the Republican or the Democrat, they really are asking you, hey, you want me to break your leg or do you want me to break your pinky finger? You have to pick. 
or I'm going to pull the trigger and kill you. And people are going to go, hey, I'll take the pinky finger being broken because the leg is more important. Like, that's kind of where we are. And, and of course, the media is conformist. And the media will present it as the binary option that it is. And so people don't want to think outside the box and um, rinse and repeat every single election cycle. So here we are. This standard political stuff, standard political stuff from Biden. At this point in time, your normie American is going to go, good enough. (laughs) And it's not really because of anything Biden did. It's because of things that Trump did not do. That's the best way to look at it. Okay. All right, let me do one more and then actually, let me just take the break. Let me take the break now. When we come back, I got more a potential Biden administration. Then we'll get into the culture war over Goya and Barry Weiss. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back, guys.
bitch. All right, welcome back, guys. Okay, so I will get to the Barry Weiss thing in just a little bit. I will get to the Goya thing in just a little bit. Um, but first and foremost, we got to talk about Biden's foreign policy team. <clears throat> Here we go. Axios has some new reporting on a potential Biden administration. They say the following. The core Biden foreign policy team served in the Obama administration. Blinken, who during Biden's earlier days in the U.S. Senate was his staff director on the Committee on Foreign Relations, served as Biden's national security advisor in the White House and later as deputy secretary of state under John Kerry. Jake Sullivan, who joined the Obama administration in Hillary Clinton's State Department, later served as Biden's national security advisor and was instrumental in the Iran deal. Susan Rice, who served as Obama's third national security advisor and first U.N. ambassador, has been advising the campaign and is among the women being considered for Biden's running mate. Samantha Power, Obama's second U.N. ambassador, is very involved in the Biden campaign and is, and is talked about as a potential secretary of state. Donalyn Brothers, long in Biden's personal and professional orbit, served in Obama's White House, Mike in the VP's office, and Tom as Obama's second national security advisor. Julie Smith, a Europe specialist who started in the Pentagon and then served as Biden's deputy national security advisor, could find herself as ambassador to NATO or the UN. So um, they're basically just diving in and saying, like, here are the people who we know in one way or another will be involved in a potential Biden administration. This is, uh, you know, narrowing the scope to the issue of foreign policy. And there's a couple takeaways from this, okay? Really, the most important one is we know exactly what we're going to get. We know what we're going to get. We know that a Biden White House is effectively a third term of Obama when it comes to foreign policy. Is that good enough? No, I don't think that's good enough. I think that's, um, I think that's pretty pathetic and... Here's my issue with it. You have, here are the two dominant strains of thought when it comes to foreign policy in Washington, D.C. The most dominant one is neoconservatism, which is incredibly hawkish. It thinks the U.S. rightly should run the world, and it believes in what's called hard power. So you want to invade and put boots on the ground, as they say, uh, in a variety of different countries, and they use different, you know, reasons in, in different areas um, to make the argument. So they'll say in some countries in the Middle East, well, you have to get al-Qaeda under control and ISIS under control, so we need to, to stay there. In other areas, it's strategically to co combat um, Russia and China on the geopolitical world stage, and, you know, we're in this grand chess match with Russia and China, and so we need to make sure we have a presence in a bunch, bunch of different places. But the idea behind neoconservatism is intervention, hawkishness, uh, aggression, because they believe 
that whenever we use power, it is justified by definition because we are the good guys by definition and we're, you know, restoring the world order and keeping everything in control. Now, that differs from the other school of thought, which is the soft power school of thought, which we saw under the Obama administration. Now, that idea is, whoa, 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 whoa. These neocon hawks are far too aggressive, and their idea of putting boots on the ground in these countries, it's, quote, stupid. Now, notice the word they use there. They use the word stupid. They don't say it's immoral. They don't say it's unethical. They don't say it's illegal. It's merely a strategic difference. Like, oh, they want to wage an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us, killing minimum 200,000 uh, 200, Iraqi civilians. We, on the other hand, think that's a stupid war. The smart war was Afghanistan. This is how they think. So as a general rule, the people who believe in soft power, um, they do not like the idea of boots on the ground beyond, you know, an advisory role to help troops in the region. Um, but they are big defenders and big proponents of air power. They like using drone strikes. They like using traditional airstrikes. They think that, yes, we run the world and we should run the world, but we should be a little bit less overt about that and a little bit more intelligent about that, and we should use soft power wherever possible and avoid hard power wherever possible. So that's really the distinction. That's really the difference. Now, I will not do a full equivalence here because there isn't, they're not exactly equal, which is why from the Obama administration, for example, you got a Cuba deal, which was beautiful, which said, hey, the Cold War uh, was stupid and it's done and we're going to, you know, open up a line of communication and we're going to move towards normalizing relations between the United States and Cuba. That's a good thing. That, that's honestly one of the best things Obama did. The other thing, which is the best thing Obama and Biden did, is the Iran deal. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. You know, um, that's what we should have done. And we should have stuck by the deal. Instead, we ripped it up. We violated the deal. And then we turned around and blamed them. But that was an amazing crowning accomplishment. I think that what was done with Cuba and Iran are far higher on the list of Obama's accomplishments um, than Obamacare, because Obamacare fundamentally was a right-wing reform that originally started in the Heritage Foundation, the individual mandate system. That's not a left-wing approach to health care. It was better than nothing, but the reason why I don't put that as high on the list is because fundamentally it's a conservative idea, whereas normalizing relations with Cuba and Iran, I think that's more of a left-wing idea. So there are differences. There are differences, and you can say that the soft power approach is better. However, like I said at the beginning here, it's not enough. Now, honestly, guys, I hate to say it, but it's true. You've got to blame Bernie Sanders for this. Why? Because he put no pressure on Biden when it came to foreign policy. None. Why did Bernie not meet with Biden prior to Bernie dropping out and giving him his endorsement? And why didn't he say, listen, one of the things you're going to have to do for me is there need to be certain positions in your administration that are filled with my ideological allies and representatives. And we've had these conversations behind the scenes. I remember um, I was talking to another, you know, prominent lefty, and he asked me, hey, would you rather have 
policy concessions from Biden or staffing concessions from Biden? And my response to him was 100% staffing concessions. Now, why is that? Because they could just lie about, oh, I'm going to push for this policy or I'm going to support that policy. He could just say he's going to do that and then not do it. And nobody's going to hold him accountable. You think the media is going to hold him accountable? You think other Democrats are going to hold him accountable? Not going to happen. So, but staffing you can't fake. If he says, I'm going to put, you know, Bernie ally X in this position, well, then that's immediate. Like, we immediately know if he's going to violate that. And, you know, I don't think it takes balls to deny, to do a fake policy concession and then ignore it. It would be incredibly ballsy and a lot less likely to say, I'm going to put a Bernie staffer in this position and then not do that. So, but my problem is that Bernie didn't really push for any concessions. He didn't push for what he could have done, five or ten executive orders in return for his support that are promised within the first 100 days. He didn't do that. And he didn't even push for any staffing either. So for me, the fact that I'm reading through a list of who will help Biden on foreign policy, who will be in his administration on foreign policy, and it's virtually all former Obama people, well, now I know, as a matter of fact, that we're going to take the soft power approach, and I know that we're still going to do drone strikes, and we're still going to do uh, traditional airstrikes, and we're still going to view ourselves as in imperial power. And, in, and more importantly, we still believe in intervention. See, like, you know what would have been a great concession that, somebody, that Bernie should have fought for? What if for Ro Khanna as Secretary of State? What is for Ro Khanna, Secretary of State? Ro Khanna is actually, believe it or not, liked by some people on the right because he's worked with them on stuff like ending wars. Like he's working with Matt Gates, for example, on that. There are others on the right who he's worked with. But also, even the more moderate Democrats, some of them like Ro just because Ro is interpersonally very nice to them. You know, when it comes to his voting record, it's pretty solidly left, especially on foreign policy. And so that would be the perfect kind of pick who could, you know, everybody would kind of be happy with, first and foremost. But second of all, I don't have to question. I know he's a believer in non-intervention. I know that that's his ideology. I know that he would prioritize ending wars, doing less intervention. So I really do blame Bernie for not fighting to get more staffers in the Biden administration but especially when it comes to foreign policy, because it's all Obama people, or virtually all Obama people, which means that even if there are symbolic concessions or actual concessions on other fronts, whether it's economically or environmentally or whatever it may be, the area where the president has the most direct control, there's like no concessions. So I know I'm going to get a third term of Obama, and I know exactly what to expect. The occasional issue, where, which is good, like Cuba or Iran, but overall, it'll be far too hawkish, too much intervention, too many drone strikes. So it's a shame, but, you know, my job is to tell you guys the truth, and that's the truth. All right, next. Do, 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 bitch. Do, 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 bitch. The new culture war battle, and we seemingly have one of these every single week now. It's over Goya, the company Goya, probably known mostly for their beans. So um, this has been raging for a while now. 
take a look at a, a short video. This is this is the gist of what's been going on. Now that was the president of Goya Foods. He was on this program with Ashley last week. He sparked controversy and a boycott when he praised President Trump. Well, now there's a counter push, a boycott actually pushing back against the boycott. One supporter has started a GoFundMe page to buy Goya products. Casey Harper is the man who's doing it. He's on the screen right now. Casey, right, let's get right at it. How much have you... Yeah, I think you've only been doing this a couple of days. How much have you raised? Well, we started on Saturday afternoon, and uh, uh, we're already up. I just refreshed. If you refresh every you know, few minutes, you'll see a different number, but we're over 160000 now. So it's really taken off. Yes, it certainly has. In a couple of days, that's a remarkable yes. amount of money. Is, are you doing this because of free speech? And I ask the question because when you boycott somebody or their product for what they have said, essentially, I think you're clamping down on free speech. Is that why you've organized this boycott? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, uh, you said and that this has sparked controversy. And it's amazing that a CEO who also praised President Obama saying they praised President Trump is a source of controversy. And I think the CEO is right that we're really at a perilous time in our nation where people can't even say, wow, the, the president is doing okay. Listen, my initial reaction every time we get one of these new culture war stories is for me to roll my eyes. I mean, it's just what happens every time. I hear about the new, the new battle, the new front on the culture war. I don't care. Like, why? I, I think what frustrates me the most, I'm trying to put it in perspective, and I'm, like, thinking it through live as I talk to you guys here, but I think the thing that pisses me off the most is that this stuff ends up dominating the national discourse for an extended period of time, and it's happening at a time when we have 20% actual unemployment, we have 32% of the country can't pay their bills, and so there's going to be a foreclosure and eviction crisis as soon as they allow foreclosures and evictions. We have a pandemic where over 130,000 Americans died. We're hitting record numbers every single day in terms of new cases of COVID. We're waging, we're bombing seven or eight different countries right now. You know, how have we gotten to a place where people care more about beans than they do about all of the issues that I just laid out. It drives me crazy that the national media cannot, they're allergic to focusing on the things I just said. But so, honestly, keep it real, man, so are most people involved in the national discourse. Now, maybe I'm biased by, you know, what I see on my Twitter timeline, but, like, anytime I get the sense that somebody is more obsessed with the culture war on either side than they are with those very serious issues I just laid out, I'm beyond triggered. They need to invent a new word to describe how triggered I am. Because I just feel like this is so unserious. This is so ridiculous. This is so beneath any real, intelligent, rational conversation about how to fix problems and improve society. Um, so I think that's the core of it, why I really hate culture war stuff. Now, beyond that, um, they made a claim there that's really dubious. They claim that boycotting is clamping down on free speech. You know, I'm pretty sure boycotting is free speech. So if somebody says, like, I will not buy your products because I don't agree with you, 
They have the freedom to do that. That is an act that they are free to do. That strikes me as free speech. Um, I mean, you could argue that maybe it's something categorically different when somebody says, not only am I not going to buy them, I will do everything I can to try to make sure that nobody else ever buys them, and I will try my best to like take away your livelihood by putting you out of business completely. I think that maybe you could say that's in a different category because it does kind of have the side effect of trying to clamp down on anybody from speaking their mind because if they utter something that's not totally in sync with what you believe, then like you shouldn't even have the right to earn a living and like screw you. The core of it is like I don't care if you're miserable and destitute the rest of your life because you thought the wrong thing. So I do think at a certain point you could say that's maybe crossing a line and is sort of censorious, but at the same time, where is that line? Because the line certainly isn't just somebody saying, I don't want to have that product because I don't agree with the politics of the person, who, you know, who's the head of the company or whatever. You know, so I don't know. I, don't, I actually don't know what my own beliefs are on um, these kinds of boycotts. Because you do see people on the left and the right always flip their beliefs on it. Like, you know, if somebody says some right-wing stuff, the left is like, all right, screw them, I don't want to buy their product. But vice versa, too. If it's a, somebody says some left-wing stuff, the right says we don't want to buy their product. In fact, they have historically done it a lot more over the past few decades. I remember covering a thousand stories about how these right-wing groups says, don't buy this because, you know, the liberal leaders and they're extremists and whatever. So I don't know. I actually don't know what my overall opinion is on boycotts and boycotts. Um, boycott is a ridiculous word that I think was just made up. But, it, I mean, I guess it makes sense. These people are like, I will buy all the beans in the world now because I want to trigger the lefties. <laughs> I tweeted something the other day that um, there's going to be a bunch of conservatives eating extra beans and farting up a storm now because they want to trigger the libs. And then, lo and behold, that's, I think, exactly what happened. <laughs> there was one guy who tweeted, like, I just had extra coffee and a bunch of extra beans, bro, because I hate the libs. And it's like, a lot of coffee and a lot of beans, I do not want to be near that dude. <laughs> that's for damn sure. This is going to be disgusting by him. But anyway, my overall opinion on boycotts and boycotts, I actually don't have, you know, like a, a strong take in one direction or the other. I think that... Generally, I haven't really participated in, like, economic boycotts personally because they say – some people say that's voting with your wallet. Like, vote to give your money to companies that more represent your values. But I think the overall problem with that is there are so few, probably maybe even no companies that really represent my values. <laughs> so it's like, what am I going to do, just not buy anything and not participate in society? So I just find that it's almost like because of the nature of society, there's nowhere to go to ethically buy different products or whatever. So it's like, what am I going to do? I have to participate in the society, right? So my general feeling is that I don't do boycotts or boycotts, um, but I think that more stems more so from my laziness than anything else. You know, and maybe the fact that I'm already addicted to certain things, like I'm sure that, you know, McDonald's and Taco Bell or whatever, like they probably have some horrible practices, but I'm like, God damn, I love fast food, bro. What am I supposed to do? So it's like, I'm almost already addicted to it. So maybe I'm just rationalizing when I say that, Hey, it's not a good idea to do boycotts or boycotts. I don't know. See, this is what I'm saying. I haven't really thought through in detail my take on boycotts and boycotts. I think I generally just haven't really done them 
more so out of laziness and convenience. But I think my other point stands that even if you want to try to do it, there are no companies out there that represent even my values. And I think of myself as a relatively mild social democrat. Imagine how somebody out there who's like a Marxist feels when, you know, like what are they going to, who are they going to support? There's only, there's very few worker-owned co-ops. So what are you going to buy, try to buy everything you can from a worker-owned co-op? It's like, that's, is that even possible? I don't think that's possible. So, but anyway, um, the culture war is still raging and it's still, you know, more front and center than all the other very serious problems that we're talking about. And that drives me more and more crazy by the day. All right, now we will talk about Barry Weiss. All right, here we go. This is, this is an interesting one. So Barry Weiss wrote a letter announcing her resignation from the New York Times. This was a very big story the other day, really blew up. Um, and to sum up her argument here, and I'm going to be as, you know, as fair as I can and as objective I can in discussing this, but to sum up her argument, she basically said that the New York Times has lost sight of their principles and their mission, and um, they have this new orthodoxy that everybody must follow. I think in her mind she would say that it's like a, you know, like a left-wing orthodoxy. They're biased in like a left-wing direction and in like a pro-cancel culture direction. And so she's leaving because she believes in free speech and intellectual rigor and open debate and the free exchange of ideas. Um, and so this is the gist of her letter. Now, let me read, let me read you a part of the letter that really stuck out to me. So the rest of the letter is in the vein of what I just described that she's trying to say the New York Times lost their way and they don't abide by their principles and there's a left-wing orthodoxy, so on and so forth. But this part stuck out. She says the following, my own forays into wrong think have made me the subject of constant bullying by, by colleagues who disagree with my views. They have called me a Nazi and a racist. I have learned to brush off comments about how I'm writing about the Jews again. Several colleagues perceived to be friendly with me were badgered by coworkers. My work and my character are openly demeaned on company-wide Slack channels where masthead editors regularly weigh in. There, some coworkers insist I need to be rooted out if this company is, is to be a truly inclusive one, while others post axe emojis next to my name. Still, other New York Times employees smear me as a liar and a bigot on Twitter with no fear that harassing me will be met with appropriate action. They never are. There, are. there are terms for all of this, unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. I'm no legal expert, but I know that this is wrong. I do not understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company in full view of the paper's entire staff and the public. And I certainly can't square how you and the other Times leaders have stood by while simultaneously praising me in private for my courage. Showing up for work as a centrist at an American newspaper should not require bravery. So here's what, what's driving me crazy and what I can't wrap my mind around. And maybe some of you guys could help me here. But the letter is like, I'm resigning because the New York Times is now 
all in on their left-wing orthodoxies and being like pro-cancel culture and they don't want a diversity of views or whatever. But then in that portion I just read you, she seems to be calling for retribution against the people who don't like her and said mean things about her within the New York Times. Wouldn't that be the exact opposite of what the rest of your letter is advocating for? Okay, which is it? Do you believe in the free exchange of ideas and open discourse and and freedom of speech? And are you anti-cancel culture? Or do you want retribution and and some sort of punishment for the people who said the wrong thing and treated you in a negative way. Like bringing up the axe emoji thing, I found that fascinating because like, didn't we all agree that we were making fun of um, Elizabeth Warren because she was crying harassment at the snake emojis that were tweeted at her when she stabbed Bernie in the back? Like everybody unanimously agreed like, well, she's being a snowflake and like, that's part of free speech, and people are calling her a snake because her actions were that of a snake, stabbing her friend of all these years in the back to try to get ahead politically. Barry, people are tweeting mean emojis or something about Barry Weiss, or they're talking shit about her in, in a company uh, thing, and all of a sudden she's saying, I don't understand how you have allowed this kind of behavior to go on inside your company. What do you mean allowed? Are people not allowed to tweet emojis or disparage other workers or talk shit about them? That definitely is free speech. And to want retribution against them means you're advocating for cancel culture, which gets to the issue with Barry Weiss in the first place. You know, the very famous story of her now is that she rose to prominence back when she was in college and she went after her Arab and Muslim professors because they were pro-Palestine and she argued they're being anti-Semitic. So she tried to cancel them and like literally hurt their lives professionally in the sense that she wants them gone. So, like, she was the original advocate of cancel, cancel culture. This is a point that has been made many times over, is that a lot of these people who claim to be anti-cancel culture, they're the first ones to immediate hurl, immediately hurl accusations of anti-Semitism at somebody if they say anything pro-Palestinian or critical of the Israeli government. So that's one problem. The other problem is a lot of people say, well, that was back when she was in college. So what does that matter? Like, don't hold her past views against her. She's not like that anymore. But last year, she tried to get Eli Valley fired as well, calling him, smearing him as an anti-Semite. So she just did the same thing last year where she's smearing people in the most vituperative ways imaginable. As on the other hand, she cries bloody murder when somebody's critical of her. So by the way, let me give you one more here, too, just to show you that this, this wasn't like an isolated thing. Half of her resignation letter was like, you know, anti-cancel culture uh, against the times because she thinks they have too much orthodoxy and not enough diversity of opinion, so on and so forth. Uh, and then the other half was, man, there really should be some sort of accountability here and somebody should go after the people who were mean to me. So you're, while advocating against cancel culture, she's advocating for cancel culture. She also says, quote, if a person's ideology is in keeping with the new orthodoxy, they and their work remain unscrutinized. Everyone else, else lives in fear of the digital thunderdome. Online venom is excused so long as it is directed at the proper targets. Yeah, but hold on. If you believe in free speech and a free exchange of ideas, as I do, by the way, deeply, then that last line, online venom is excused so long as it's directed at the proper targets, your response should be, cool. That's the free exchange of ideas. Guys, free speech also means 
that when there are disagreements and when there are debates, they're going to get tense. They could get loud. They could get personal, too. They could, like, people could scream at each other. People could say things that perhaps later on they'd regret. That's part of the free exchange of ideas. Cancellation is only defined as cancellation, in my opinion, when there are professional consequences. So you try to get somebody fired, try to ruin their life or dock them or something to that effect. If people are spewing venom, as she says, good. That's called free speech. That's called open debate. That is the free exchange of ideas that you talk about in such glowing terms on the one hand, but then on the other hand, when there actually is a free exchange of ideas, you say stuff like this. She thinks, oh, if people say things that are with the new orthodoxy, they're unscrutinized. By the way, that's, I don't think that's generally true. I think people are saying all sorts of things, and everybody's being scrutinized. But beyond that, she says, you know, online venom is excused as long as it's directed at the proper targets. It should be excused. Online venom should be excused as long as you're not actually, like, getting somebody fired or, or doxing them or hurting them or whatever. Like, that's the open debate that you pretend to love. So it's just, it's ridiculous. Um, let's all agree on the most important point here, which is if you quit, you can't claim that you're being canceled. You quit. So what are you, canceling yourself? It seems like this is all too, it's too self-promotional. It, it's like she, it seems like she's looking for an angle to be really dramatic and step down, and then I bet she's going to start some new kind of venture where they pretend like we're all about, we're the real place for the free exchange of ideas. And um, it, it, it just screams from every word she writes that there's some sort of angle here. Um, now, by the way, the final point I want to make is this. There's this, this blurring of the lines between disagreement and criticism versus cancellation that a lot of elite writers make and a lot of elite media figures make. There are so many people who seem to believe that like harsh criticism directed at them is equivalent of canceling. Listen, as somebody who's to some degree a public figure, my response to that is, hell no. If somebody's harshly critical of you, that's not cancel culture. Even if somebody is, like, really mean to you, and maybe even, like, too personal in how they attack you, that's still not cancel culture. <laughs> Again, canceling is when there are professional consequences. There are real-world doxing, firing, things of that effect. That's, that's real cancel culture. Everything else is just disagreement. And there's this real blurring of the lines that somebody like Barry Weiss, all that happens is people criticize her. Like, that's it. And she acts like it's some bigger issue than it is like this is the thing i can't stand is that a lot of elite media people have made this issue a joke now because really they're all fundamentally mad that people are rude to them in their menchies that's what it comes down to and the core of her belief and the core of her argument that like oh the new york times is too orthodox in their views now and they just go along with the left-wing herd and nobody's critically thinking and nobody's dissenting guys there are zero real left voices at the New York Times. It's packed full of neoliberal corporatists who are identitarian and pro-intervention, for sure. But there are, as far as I know, zero, or let's be kind here and say very few, real left-wing voices. So the idea that it's like, oh, the left-wing mob and their orthodoxy is taking everything over, absurd. 
How many advocates are there at the New York Times of Scandinavian-style social democracy, the likes of which that I would advocate for or Bernie Sanders would advocate for? How many are there? How many openly Marxist writers are there at the New York Times? How many openly anarchist writers are there? How many openly anarcho-syndicalist writers are there? How many open anti-war voices are there? Guys, I got news for you. The New York Times and every establishment media outlet, they've across the board supported every war in the past few decades. They've argued for it. See, and this is my other problem with what people like Barry Weiss do is they never, they talk about, you know, diversity of ideas, and, but they don't actually believe in it or preach it. Because Barry even said in her own piece, she says, well, my job was to bring voices to the New York Times that wouldn't otherwise be brought to the New York Times, including uh, conservative voices and centrist voices. So the implication is, oh, they already have a lot of leftists there. I'm bringing the conservatives and the centrists. But I just told you, you have no Marxists. You have no anarchists. You have no social democrats. Uh, you, you really want to have a free exchange of ideas? Well, let's freaking have it. There are people who would argue that there's utility in property violence, and therefore property violence is good insofar as it brings about positive social change. So in other words, like, yes, there, it could be useful to burn down, you know, buildings in order to try, and for a means to an end, in order to get positive change. And they even have evidence they could point back to, you know, South Africa. Nelson Mandela was able to say to the ruling authority, you want to deal with me or you want to deal with them? Because there are people out there who are rioting and burning the stuff down. You could deal with me. I'm a lot more peaceful, but you're going to make some concessions. And it worked. So do you really want to have Let's have it. Point me to your, somebody arguing for Marxism at the New York Times. You're not going to get it. See, that's the thing is they have like, the furthest left they go is like Mayor Pete. <laughs> and then the furthest right they go is Tom Cotton openly advocating for authoritarianism. And then he had the nerve to turn around and argue like they were suppressing my free speech when, you know, they came out and like added an editor's note and then eventually pulled it or something like that. They're suppressing my free speech. I was only using my free speech to say nobody else should have the right to free speech. See, that's the spectrum of debate that's acceptable. As far right as somebody like Tom Cotton, who's an open authoritarian, and as far left as somebody like Mayor Pete, who's not left. See, that's my problem with these people. They don't actually believe in a free exchange of ideas. They don't believe in it, because then you'd have communists. Then you'd have anarchists. Then you'd have anarcho-syndicalists. You'd invite Noam Chomsky to write you know, a detailed piece on whatever the hell he wants to write a piece on. You'd have anti-war voices who are principled and who can make the arguments in a coherent, clear way. You know, New York Times isn't knocking on my door to get me to write something. I'm a co-founder of Justice Democrats. I was one of the only people on the left who foresaw that Trump could definitely win in 2016. Nobody's talking to me. They had this whole segment of, you know, never Trumpers are, are, are featured very prominently. Early on, when I was like, there's no way I'm voting for Biden, nobody came to me and said, oh, would you like to be a never Biden um, commentator and write an article? They don't do that. Now, listen, I'm, I'm talking about me. I, honestly, I genuinely don't want to have anything to do with them, but I'm just using that as an example to show you guys there is no real diversity of ideas, and she's not really for uh, diversity of opinion. If she starts her new thing, which she probably will, go ahead. We'll give her a year, and then we come back afterwards, and you tell me how many Marxists wrote articles in there, how many anarchists wrote articles in there, how many people advocating for the utility of property damage. 
You're not going to find it. How many anti-war voices? You're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. So that's my problem with this stuff, is that she's wrong in her diagnosis and she's wrong in her response to it, and it all smells a little too opportunistic to me. And um, I think that this kind of stuff takes a very real issue. I do think cancel culture is a real issue. And it muddies the waters and it makes it look ridiculous because she is ridiculous. All right, next. Some of the younger viewers of the show actually might not remember too much about Glenn Beck because it's been a while now. Glenn Beck was on Fox News, had to be over a decade ago now. And so a lot of the younger viewers here are like, I don't know really anything about this guy. Well, this guy made a name for himself by being insane. And he would have these chalkboard conspiracies where he would write all these different things and connect all the dots between look, Van Jones is in the Obama administration and Van Jones was an avowed communist. I'm going to draw a line over here and put like Louis Farrakhan over here and I'm going to put Reverend Wright over here who hates America and then draw it to Obama and then at the end of the day, oh my God, he's, he's a communist and, and he's an Islamist as well. He would say these insane things and he was so insane and he went so far that after a while, even Fox News was like, uh, like it, it was too much. It was too much too quickly. And I think a lot of advertisers pulled at some point, and then his show was gonzo. But then he had his own network, and they were in all this financial trouble, and I think they have some sort of deal that they worked out with maybe, I think it might have been Ben Shapiro's The Daily Wire. And so, anyway, long story short, he's back to his old tricks. His old tricks are being insane and pushing conspiracy theories. Look at what he just said this week. California, you cannot accept this ban with churches. <clears throat> it's not a coincidence that the left has said they wanted to destroy the wealth of the United States and destroy what? The entrepreneurial spirit. Do you remember when Barack got in and he started all of these things and all of these, these local Marxists started banning um, uh, lemonade stands? Well, I'll do you one better. If you watch your family lose everything because they were entrepreneurs, and you're being taught that capitalism is bad in school, do you want to be an entrepreneur? It's not a coincidence that over 50% of restaurants now are closed for good. As of today, 41% of all businesses overall closed permanently. Now, those are the small businesses. And they were the ones that were ordered closed by the government, bars, restaurants, gyms, yoga studios. The next wave, especially in California, you're toast. There will be no more wealth to redistribute. And the Marxists and the anarchists and the Islamists, something that I was marked by every single person in the media, left and right, I was called a madman for saying it. Everything we talked about at Fox, everything is now in play. It's all here. And what is coming, my friend?
is going to be tough unless we all stand together, unless we return to our God, unless we allow this initial impact to change us fundamentally. Marxists, anarchists, Islamists working together, they're not even hiding it anymore. Seroquel, look into it. Seroquel, Glenn. The headline of the video, the title of the video was, Not a Coincidence, Federal Debt, COVID Lockdowns, BLM Protests, and CARE are all connected. CARE is the Council on American and Islamic Relations. It's a big Muslim advocacy group. (laughs) Let me repeat that. Not a coincidence, federal debt, COVID lockdowns, BLM, and CARE are all connected. So he says, he starts out by saying, we can't ban churches. Nobody's banning churches, dog. They might be shutting down in-person gatherings in enclosed areas, but they're doing that because there's a pandemic ripping through the country like wildfire. That's why they're doing it. I love how... Nothing could just be Occam's razor. Glenn Beck's whole job is to do the opposite of Occam's razor every time he talks. (laughs) Occam's razor says the reason why they're shutting down all these things is because there's a pandemic and a lot of people are dying and they're they're fearful of a lot more people dying. So they want to shut it down before you overwhelm the hospitals and make the exacerbate the problem even more. He said he gets all melodramatic. They can't ban churches. Then he says. The left said they want to destroy the wealth of the United States. Okay, I don't know what he's referring to, but I'm very confident in saying whatever he thinks he's referring to, he's strawmanning the hell out of somebody who made a more reasonable point. (laughs) Nobody has ever said, I want to destroy the wealth of the United States. What are you saying? Um, Then he goes on to cite how over 50% of restaurants are closed for good, And he lists all these businesses that are going to be hurt. Bars, restaurants, gyms, yoga studios. Yes, because of the pandemic. So if anything, you should be mad at Donald Trump and you should be mad at the leadership in this crisis because there was no leadership. We didn't get the virus under control. And now a lot more things are shutting down again. If we had just done universal masks early on, we could have avoided a lot of the shutdowns and people would have been much better off. We would have saved so many more lives. But bring that up to Glenn Beck and see what he says. So the solution would have been universal masks from early on in the pandemic. He would turn around and say, that's tyrannical. It's tyranny. Yes. So it's tyranny to wear a mask, which is the solution. But then he turns around and complains that all these things are shutting down. But they're shutting down because we didn't control the pandemic and because people weren't wearing masks. You got you to gotta pick one, bro. <laughs> you got to pick one. Now, notice. So, and here's the main point in this segment. He could have talked about the lack of leadership, which led to all these economic problems, and a bunch of other countries have it under control, and the unemployment rate is still really low. How? They temporarily nationalize wages. He could have called for that. That would have stopped all these problems that he's complaining about. He could blame the corrupt politicians in Washington, D.C., for making every wrong decision every step of the way, he's not doing that. What does he do? He takes COVID-19 and the economic crisis, and 
he redirects anger away from the oligarchs and towards Marxists, anarchists, and Islamists, who he says are coming to take your wealth and turn us away from God. It, by the way, it doesn't matter how religious you are. That's not going to change, fix any of these real-world problems, by the way. I mean, you can believe whatever you want to believe, but that's not... doesn't matter if you're more religious, less religious, whatever. That's not going to impact what's happening with the economy and what's happening with the pandemic. But he looks at all these problems, the economic problems, the debt, which, by the way, the debt isn't the real problem. The real problem is the freaking depression that we're in. Instead of blaming the lack of leadership, the lack of getting the virus under control, the corrupt politicians, he blames Marxists, anarchists, and Islamists. In other words, people with zero power. There are no Marxists in the U.S. with any power. There are no anarchists in the U.S. with any power. There are no Islamists in the U.S. with any power. None. But he somehow is redirecting. See, this is what this is the brilliant old trick, where you get you get a lot of conservative people instead of blaming the oligarchs and blaming the wealthy and blaming the politicians and blaming the corrupted people and institutions for their problems. Glenn Beck is redirecting all this anger towards Marxists, anarchists, and Islamists, which is just a stand-in for leftists. And Muslims. So, oh my God, the economic problems, all these economic problems, blame the leftists, blame the Muslims. Scapegoating 101. Leftists and Muslims, they have Dickie, Dickie McGee's act to do with this. You know who created this situation? The, the politicians. Trump, not calling for universal masks early on. Washington, D.C., for not passing a UBI to make sure everybody's okay through this pandemic. The lack of Medicare for all. So our politicians representing the for-profit health insurance companies instead of the people. This is where the blame goes. The blame goes on the government for passing the CARES Act and doing a reverse Robin Hood and fully implementing corporate socialism. See, he would blame just socialism. No, that's not who you, what you should blame. You should blame corporate socialism. So that's corporatism. The government allows the wealthy and corporations to loot the treasury. It's not regular people who are getting some, some government money. That one-time stimulus payment wore off a long time ago. So it's just, I can't even keep up with how stupid the argument is. So you're upset about the economy shutting down. Okay, well then be upset about not getting COVID under control. That's why the economy keeps shutting down. And who do you blame for that? You've got to blame Trump. You've got to blame the politicians. You've got to blame the lack of universal masks. You've got to blame the lack of Medicare for all. How are we going to have millions of people without health insurance during the fucking pandemic? And what are you doing? You're blaming Marxists, anarchists, and Islamists. This is why we can't have nice things. Because any real objective look at the problem, any real objective look at the state of the country, would immediately find, oh, we know exactly who's to blame. It's the Republicans and the Democrats in Washington, D.C., who are constantly looking out for their corporate donors and the wealthy, far above and beyond the needs of your average American. That's who you blame for all of this. That's who you blame. But he will keep doing everything he can to take the blame away from the 1% and put it towards people with no money, no power. And he also sprinkles in a nice dash of uh, religiosity, extreme religiosity, fundamentalism, theocracy, 
And uh, in real time, he's reducing the IQ of his listeners. <laughs> That's what I get from watching this clip. All right. Next. I must admit, I take great pleasure in this next clip that you're about to see because CNN finally acknowledged the reality about Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York. Um, Jake Tapper and Sanjay Gupta, I know this is rare. Well, Sanjay Gupta is okay. I'm not... I never really had too big of an issue with him in the first place. But Jake Tapper, I do have many issues with. But this is a rare instance of, like, credit where it's due because this is the segment that should have been done on COVID-19 and Andrew Cuomo months ago. But they finally told the truth. Watch this. Speaking of New York, New York's Democratic governor, Andrew Cuomo, seems to be on something of a victory tour, congratulating the state and himself for defeating the virus, even selling this poster, which shows his state getting over the mountain by bringing down the curve during the 111 days of hell, as the governor put it. The poster includes references to his daughters and a boyfriend, little inside jokes. There are no illustrations, however, of the more than 32,000 dead New Yorkers, the highest death toll by far of any state. No rendering on that poster of criticism that Governor Cuomo ignored warnings, no depiction of the study that he could have saved thousands of lives had he and Mayor de Blasio acted sooner. No painting there on the poster of his since rescinded order that nursing homes take all infected patients in. Here's what Governor Cuomo had to say yesterday. What we went through and what we did was historic because we did tame the beast. We did turn the corner. We did plateau that mountain and then we came down the other side. And they will be talking about what we did for decades to come. Here to discuss this and more is CNN Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. And Sanjay, look, I know a lot of New Yorkers are happy that the infection numbers are down, and you know we all hope that they stay down. But let's be clear, this is revisionism. And a lot of the crowing, and Governor Cuomo going on late night, is, is offending a lot of New Yorkers, given the fact that this is the highest death toll of any state, more than 32,000 dead. The next closest is New Jersey with 17,000. Are people going to be talking about what Governor Cuomo did for decades to come in the way he hopes? Uh, I, uh, unfortunately, I, I don't think so, Jake. I mean, I think we're very early days in this. You know, we're looking at the first few pages of, of the history books, and I think there's a lot more to be written. I'm a little surprised uh, by that poster, i got to tell you, because, you know, I think if anything, this, what this virus has taught us is that we need to have a significant amount of humility. This virus surprises us over and over again. There's no place in the country that's not vulnerable. And I think that we should have learned, I think we have learned, that victory laps are, are not the thing to be doing. There you have it. Now, again, they should have done this segment previously, but I'll take it. I'll take it. What they said there is correct. Listen, he cut billions of dollars from Medicaid. Billions of dollars. That was needed during the pandemic. We needed that Medicaid funding. 
he really is, like, obnoxiously bragging when he made a bunch of terrible decisions, man. He really did. A bunch of very, very poor decisions, especially that nursing home decision. And then also trying to give them liability protection so they don't get sued. And by the way, that's something the Republicans are trying to do on the, at the national level as well. They want to protect all these businesses from getting sued. It wasn't good leadership. The reason, okay, there's one thing that I credit for New York finally being in the position that we are today, where we're one of the few states that's either steady or on the decline. We've been on the decline for a long time. Why? Because at a certain point, it got so bad here. So we were early. I think the only one before us was Washington State. Um, They, I think, had the first outbreak. And then it was New York. So we just were ahead of everybody else in terms of getting it. So we got over the hump, and then, you know, eventually we started improving. So, really, it's almost like he's bragging because we had it earlier than most other states, which is like, okay, but it didn't have to be as bad as it was. We were, we were the worst state. So what do, I, what do I give credit to for the improvement? Actually, very simple, universal masks. That really, at a certain point, when it got so bad, and the news reports every day were just disaster on top of disaster on top of disaster. We hit a tipping point where everybody was like, oh, it's time to mask up, son. And then now you cannot go to any place, any business where you're inside and it's enclosed and there's multiple people and not wear a mask. Everybody wears a mask. Anytime I go in public, it's masks everywhere. And I really do think that's the one thing that really ended up drastically reducing the numbers. Um, But just imagine, like, I I know it's almost painful to do this thought experiment, but just imagine we did this at the national level, and we did it all the way back in late March. We could have saved so many lives just from this, just from this. But instead, we didn't do it early on. And there's a lot of states where there's still a taboo. And if you wear a mask, people look at you like, what are you doing? There was a story about Florida where that exact thing happened. There's a, I think it was like a minor league baseball player who was there, and he wore a mask to go to the grocery store, and people were giving him dirty looks. There's a lot of places where there's like a taboo against it. Honestly, in the pandemic, that should be thing number one, because that really is what ultimately got it under control in New York. And um, Cuomo loves to pat himself on the back and suck himself off a little bit here, but... If his leadership was great, we wouldn't have had the highest death numbers in the country. We wouldn't, have the mo- we wouldn't have had the most infections in the country. We just wouldn't have. There are objective ways to measure how well you handled the crisis. And when you look at those objective measures, he didn't do it. The final point I'll make, though, is isn't it interesting that for the longest time, all he had to do was pretend to be leading in a strong, brave way. Pretend. And that was enough to make the approval rating spike, which means think about how colossally bad Trump is that as soon as he stopped those daily COVID uh, press briefings, his numbers plummeted. And, you know, he, now he's just totally avoiding the issue. And so his numbers keep falling, falling, falling. If he was intelligent, he would have never stopped pretending to, to be a leader. 
and pretending to be on top of it. Because apparently, and it's sad to say, apparently that's all it really takes is giving people the perception that you're on it, where even if you fail, well, as long as it looks like you're on it, well, then you'll get high approval ratings. And that's what happened with Cuomo in New York. His biggest mistake politically was that he was bragging far too much, and finally people snapped and are like, come on, man, come on, stop. Like, this is a slap in the face to everybody who was impacted by this in a negative way, and so many people in New York were impacted by this in a negative way. You, got, you can't do this. You can't go out there bragging when we, you know, we see the numbers. So if he had just shut up a little bit, he probably would have gotten away scot-free in terms of, you know, zero accountability. But credit to CNN. This is correct. This is how we should talk about what happened in New York and the job that Andrew Cuomo did. Um, there were a lot of mistakes, a lot of them. And it actually is very depressing when you see just how far behind the rest of the world we are. Democrats love to act like, well, we believe in science and the Republicans don't. And it's like, okay, you might believe in it a little more than the Republicans do, but even when it was pretty clear that this was going to be an issue, Bill de Blasio was talking about how people need to go out and eat in New York City and it's totally fine. And so it's like they like to think they're special and they know this stuff well. And it's like, no, you really didn't. And you dragged your feet. And I don't know what it is, but a lot of the decisions made across this country have just been almost embarrassingly stupid. You know, I feel like I, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world at all, but even I was very early to warn everybody and tell you guys like, whoa, 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 this thing is serious. And um, the fact that you had mayors and governors and people lagging way behind me and I'm just a loudmouth YouTuber, it's like, what is wrong with us? So stop your obnoxious tour and your obnoxious Trumpian bragging, Cuomo. You did not do a good job, and let the record reflect that clearly. All right, let me give you, let me give you some good news. This story makes me laugh, and I think it's awesome. So Robbie Yeager of MCSC Network, which is uh, Nico House's outlet, he did some digging through financial disclosures. So this stuff is like, this is on the record here. Look at what he found. America's Progressive Promise PAC, the pro-Biden super PAC, started by former Bernie Sanders senior aide Jeff Weaver, reported zero dollars in donations in their first reporting period um, dated April to June. Per new FEC filings. That's beautiful. (laughs) So there were stories about how behind the scenes, Bernie was actually furious because Bernie doesn't believe in super PACs. And for Bernie to have a top staffer, a top advisor to him, um, create a pro-Biden super PAC, and if I'm not mistaken, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this, so fact check me on it uh, in real time as I say it, but I'm pretty sure he tried to like use Bernie's name in some ways And Bernie was like, how could you do this? You know, I don't believe in super PACs. And um, 
yeah, that's, I mean, this guy, come on, man, what are you doing? Like, that's beyond obnoxious. That's grotesque. That flies in the face of everything that Bernie says he believes, believes in he's supposed to believe in. You're with Bernie for so long, and then you create a pro-Biden super PAC? I mean, come on. Well, this goes to show you. There is, I, I love the fact that Bernie's base does not mess around and they're even willing to hold Bernie himself accountable. I, I really do find that refreshing, and that is one of the few things that gives me hope, is that whenever Bernie steps out of line or somebody affiliated with Bernie, like Jeff Weaver, the base doesn't play. It's funny, because when you look at the, the Republican base, I think one of the defining characteristics is the more hardcore they are in the base, the more authoritarian they are. So, like, One America News Network, which came to existence because they said Fox is not sufficiently subservient and is not right-wing enough, they're like the most pro-Trump network. So they do hero worship more. It's very authoritarian. Whereas the more you go towards the left-wing base, the more principled they are and the less they care about hero worship. So, you know, you notice this whenever Bernie said something that was wrong about BDS, for example, virtually all of Bernie's people were like, come on, man, like, what's wrong with you? You're wrong on this. You're wrong on this. So now, like, what did he think? You thought you were going to create a pro-Biden super PAC and you were going to get all of Bernie Sanders' small-dollar donors who are working people and young people, they're all going to donate to a pro-Biden super PAC? Is that what you thought? Is that what you thought? Now, listen, it's possible, and in fact, it's probably likely that um, there's some other backstory to this, like he didn't do an official launch campaign that he was planning on doing, but for whatever reason, he stopped, could have something to do with coronavirus. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I'm assuming there's more to this story about how they postponed maybe some rollout event or whatever. There's got to be some other angle to this. But either way, either way, it brings me joy to know that even if, this guy were to go all in and were to try to raise small dollar donor money for Joe Biden via a super PAC that I don't hit the Bernie people would not be down for it. And this reminds me of all those articles that came out a few weeks ago talking about how um, the one thing that Bernie drew a line on and the one thing that Biden's, uh, Biden's staff keeps attacking him over is um, – He's not handing over that donor list, and he's not aggressively fundraising for Biden. Because Bernie, on some level, understands and knows that his people who donated to him, these are people who, like, are working people who have to make sure they save up to pay the bills, and they believed enough in Bernie's vision that they were willing to donate to him and him alone. You can't just take somebody like that and you know, try to transfer it over to a neoliberal corporatist extraordinaire who is nothing like Bernie and who represents the status quo in the old guard. So he knows that, like, this ain't going to fly, dog. Apparently this guy did not know it. (laughs) So, you know, but my guess is, and we'll end on this note here, but my guess is Weaver's probably got some other strategy involving trying to reach out to the same Democratic billionaires that other Democratic super PACs use. That's my guess. My guess is whatever the facade or the front of raising small-dollar money was, it's already gone, and 
he will eventually go, insofar as this continues, because who knows if it'll continue, he'll probably go to Democratic billionaires and just, like, you know, ask them for money and get his funding that way. And um, it'll be the veneer of grassroots support for Biden, and there will be mainstream media headlines like Bernie Sanders' staff super PAC raises X amount of money for Joe Biden in show of unity. Because that's what it's all about. It's all about the show. You know, I've seen a thousand articles like that already in terms of trying to portray it as like the brilliant way in which Biden has reached out to Bernie's base. Yes. They never talk to actual hardcore Bernie base supporters because you're not going to like what they have to say about Joe Biden's son. Even if they're voting for him, they probably got a million criticism. Um, so they do this, this veneer, this facade, this kabuki theater of like, Let's pretend like Biden has done a fantastic job with the left-wing outreach, yes. And so my guess is that this will play some sort of role in that narrative at some point. But who knows? Maybe it's the case he just already abandoned it because, I don't know, zero dollars in the first reporting period, and that's not even a short reporting period. All I have to say is I like it. Okay. All right, final story of the day. We have another crisis to add on top of our 1,000 other crises. Um, I take no joy in this, but this, something, this is something that requires drastic change. So Catherine Rample of Washington Post says, new survey of child care programs finds that about 40% say they are certain they will close permanently without additional public assistance. 40% quote certain they will close permanently without help from the government. All of the problems that Bernie Sanders and the left has highlighted for a long time in this country, they are just magnified and highlighted in a way that's above and beyond as a result of COVID-19, the pandemic, and the fallout from it. Every single one. The healthcare crisis, what happened? We already lost 7 to 9 million Americans lost healthcare under the Trump administration before the pandemic hit. Before. Now it's at least 5.4 million more because they lost their jobs and they got their insurance through their jobs that lost it. But the real number's going to be between 20 and 40 million, because I remember covering the story where they were crunching the numbers between Trump's executive orders that destroyed Obamacare and the pandemic and the fact that healthcare is tied to jobs, it's going to be some ungodly high number of people that don't have health insurance. And it's on top of the over 20 million that already didn't have it prior to even Trump getting into office, that Obamacare only worked to a certain point and there were still millions of people without it. So one of the top issues of the left is Medicare for all, healthcare for everybody, single-payer system, copy the rest of the developed world. And now, it, it, like, you could not see it any more clearly. By the way, how pathetic is the media that they don't explain these things in simple terms to people? How do you not cover Medicare for all in a, a unquestionably positive way from here on out? 
That is the objective approach. The objective approach is, well, obviously our system failed. Literally, it's a failed system, and people are getting screwed. So how would you fix it? Well, we know how to fix it. The rest of the developed world has a speed on this front. What can we learn from them? If the media was doing their job, this is how they talk about it. They never talk about it like that, ever, ever. If anything, they do the opposite. They assume that it's wild and extreme and it's unpopular and nobody would support it and it's too much change and we can't afford it. It's unbelievable what they do. Meanwhile, the polls show the American people do support it, even with the endless propaganda against it. But that's one, the left wing's top issue is Medicare for all and health care. And this crisis has shown, oh, my God, they were so right in caring about that and putting that front and center. They were so right. That was so necessary. Another one of the top issues, uh, wages. Well, what's happening now? Not only are people losing their jobs, about 20% actual unemployment that we have right now. Also, as a result of COVID, people who are keeping their jobs, many of them are taking pay cuts. 15%, 20%, 25%. Because the economy is imploding. So all these issues that the left cared about, it's now being shown in no uncertain terms. Oh my God, these guys were right all along. Well, what's this one about? Well, one of the main features of other developed nations and social democracies is a lot of the, these countries have universal child care. Because a lot of people, people have to work. You know, what are they going to do with the kids if somebody can't watch over them? Not everybody has the ability to have somebody watch over them. So, you know, in many developed countries, they universal child care. Drop them off at, you know, a certain place and they're taken care of. And then when you're done with work, you pick them up. We don't have universal child care here. So it's such a financial burden on people who can't afford it to figure out what to do with the kids. Well, now 40% of child care programs will permanently shut down without additional public assistance. Why don't we have universal child care here? We need universal child care here. And then, by the way, At a time like right now, not only do we need universal child care, we need to have experts lay out the specifics of doing child care in a safe way. Because obviously with COVID-19, it's not, it's a problem for everybody. And it's really impacting the economy. But we don't have the same kind of necessary safety net that other developed countries have, which is allowing them to weather the storm properly. You know, the best example of this is all the countries that temporarily nationalized wages. So what happened? Instead of everybody getting fired, they said the government stepped in and said, no, 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 you're not going to fire them. You're going to furlough them. So everybody's on furlough, and the government's going to step in and pay. It varies depending on the country but like 75% or 80% of their wages. And so this entire time, the wages will be subsidized, everything will be okay, and then when this is over, people go right back to their same jobs. This is how other countries handled it. We were a mess. We did full corporate socialism, gave the keys to the treasury over to corporations and billionaires, sat back as they looted it, gave the people crumbs, people got fired all over the place, people getting sick all over the place. Basic things that are fundamental building blocks of a successful civilization, they're just not there. And now we're facing a child care crisis. I'm serious. This is another crisis, another child care crisis. 
We need universal child care in this country. Unfortunately, not only do I not think we'll achieve that, we're not going to get UBI out of this pandemic because the left isn't fighting. We're not going to get Medicare for all in this pandemic because the left isn't fighting and because the Congress is totally bought and owned by special interests, including the for-profit health insurance companies. So add this on top of all the other crises that we have, and we are in sharp imperial decline. I don't, there's no way around it. This is, it's not slow, it's not steady, it is sharp imperial decline. We can't do basic things anymore. Basic things. And this is another example of it right here. All right, guys, we're done, baby. I'm going to see all y'all on Monday. Everybody, enjoy the rest of your week. I love you. I'm out, foo. Monday at the normal time, 11. Monday at 11. Love y'all. I'm out. Peace.